0: If you think about the fact that there is literature that is dealing with um, passing, dealing with what does it even mean to be black? What is the experience of being black in America? You are now asking every black person you know in 2020 to come and tell you their experience when there is an entire literary canon that, that has been writing now for 200 years about what it means to be Black in America and what that lived experience is from poverty to police brutality. And so if people would... Uh, cease to kind of burden their individual friends um, with their kind of personal narratives and begin to actually step out of yourself and realize that there is an entire canon and entire anthologies of literature, both fiction and nonfiction, that actively explores these ideas, I think that we would not have the kind of racial illiteracy that we see right now.
1: Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week we are talking with Claudia M. Allen, online content manager for Message Magazine. She is a teacher, preacher, and writer on race, anti-racism, and biblical social justice with over six years of professional training in the studies of African American literature at both the masters and doctoral level. She is passionate about the inclusion of African American studies within institutions of learning. So today, we're discussing how exposure to different cultural lenses and sociological perspectives in our educational experience can begin having a positive impact on helping people to identify racism and growing their own personal anti-racist values. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow our guest, Claudia M. Allen, at the handle at Kamal365. That's C-A-M-A-A-L365. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Add Next. Welcome, <laughs> Claudia. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to be with you. So one, I love your t-shirt, right?
0: Thank you. Yes, this is um, definitely gonna give a shout out to my friend, Cindy Victor. We actually went to school together at Andrews and she just recently started her own business called the Swarthy Lion. Um, and so this is a clothing apparel uh, shop. And so they're right here on Instagram. You can follow them at uh, shop Swarthy Lion. And this shirt is one that's really dope. It has several names of individuals who um, have been victims of police brutality Um, And then on the back, it says, I can't breathe. And she has a variety of colors. Um, So definitely appreciate you uh, acknowledging that. So I could give her a really dope shout out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So be sure to check out, what's her page again?
0: Swarthy Lion, S-W-A-R-T-H-Y, Lion, L-I-O-N. And of course, her name is Cindy Victor with an S. All right,
1: we'll have to check that out. And so I'm so glad that you're joining us today. You know, you kind of pioneered a studies African-American studies minor here at Andrews University. And I just want to ask you, you know, how can, uh, you know, just becoming more aware of African-American literature and history uh, and education be a possible solution to a lot of the stuff that we see going on today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, African-American studies in particular does a very... Um, critical deep dive into the lived experience of Africans and particularly the African descendants of slaves here in this country. And so the work of whiteness, racism, white fragility, passing, um, all of these kind of race-based motifs Um, have been at the center of African-American literature and African-American history, African-American philosophy um, from its inception. I mean, even from within the slave narratives. And so I think that if you really want to learn and understand how race is a social construction, how racism is a system of um, policy-based oppression, right? I think that that inherently is... Central to the curriculum of, of African American studies, and I think that if we can get people to get back to reading African American literature—not really even get back, but get to it, because um, it, it's really not a thing—but um, but get to reading it and and understanding that African American studies is not some ad hoc cultural degree that you get because you like reading about Black people, but it is a critically central uh, field of study that is borderline required in order for us to be able to properly function and operate with one another, um, in a completely race-based society. Tell me a little bit about how
1: this was a catalyst for you. Like, how did you jump into saying, I think we need to push for an African-American studies minor? Maybe you can give us a little background into that. And I'm sure that it shows a little bit like why this is so important, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, so for me, I grew up in um, a very real dichotomy. I grew up in a black house and I grew up in a black local church while simultaneously growing up in a white denomination, uh, while simultaneously going to white schools. And so I would always either be at my own home and I would see a lot of black art. I would see a lot of books with successful black people in it, historical black people. I would go to my grandparents' house. I would see the same thing. Um, you know, my grandparents they had, you know, the souls of black folk in their their library and you know different things like that. And so when you kind of grow up in that world, and then you go to school somewhere where all of the people are white. All of the the examples in the textbook are white. Every Bible study person is white um, Jesus is white, right? Um, there's a kind of whitewashing of the history. There's a whitewashing of the literature. There's a whitewashing of everything so that you're, you're not reading anything by any person of color. Um, you're not hearing about any ideas that are central or original to a person of color. And so there's this huge dichotomy. And then on top of that, when you add to that, that, you know, black history month becomes like an assembly program for 45 minutes on one day um, versus it's like in my home, Black History Month is all of the days, all 29, all 28 of the days. Um, and so I think that that put me into this position where I was actively in high school like, okay, Black History Month is at least gonna be a week. Okay, <laughs> here's what we're gonna do. Here's the program as a student, I planned it all myself. Um, And, you know, of course, asked various students to participate in various ways um, so that by the time I got to Andrews and was heavily involved in in black student life there, by the time I got to my senior year, kind of generating an African-American studies program was kind of, I think, germane to who I was as a person and just kind of in alignment with um, everything I had probably been doing since like sixth grade. <laughs> wow, wow. So,
1: yeah. so I, I think it's so incredible because you know you know I took um, African American studies at UCLA and I can't imagine a university not having it. So we're going to get a little bit into your story of like your experience uh, here and in undergrad and in graduate studies and kind of you you seeing the niche and the need uh, for for this to be highlighted. I think something you said earlier that was so. Uh, it, it hit me when we were talking on the phone, you were you started off your studies here as an English Studies, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that experience and, and uh, how that kind of led you into saying, I think we're missing an important part of history.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it, I think it actually came even before being an undergrad. I think that I was just abundantly aware in high school that English curriculum was insufficient um, because um, in high school I came to my first African American text my junior year in a course called um American Ethnic Lit. Um and it's a course that is taught every or was, I'm not sure if what they do now, but at the time it was taught every other year. And um they changed the culture or the ethnicity every other year like whenever the 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 course comes in. So um That kind of inconsistency, in addition to the fact that you're only eligible to take the course when you are a junior, means that the majority of your literary content is going to be English, British, white American literature. Um, And then once you get to be an upperclassman, you have the option of taking an ethnic lit course if you would like to, um, and so even when I took it then, um, I think there were only like eight of us in the class. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you then take your standardized tests, ACT, SAT, right, the majority of the reading comprehension questions or, or quotation excerpts, any of the writing excerpts, they are usually asking you questions about white literature, uh, white poetry. Um, there are no very, um, African American, Latino, Asian American, there's no ethnicity to, to the questionnaires. Uh, and so I think even at that level, I felt like my educational experience is extremely one-sided. Um, that only magnified now going to college, Um, and then you're seeing now, even within that curriculum that, okay, there's one African American lit course that's taught every other year. You can't get into it unless you're a junior. Um, and that's Harlem Renaissance literature. So that wasn't even a survey in African American literature. That was a topical course, right? So the entire department, had no survey in African American literature, but there are surveys in British literature, there are surveys in modern American literature, there's surveys in early American literature, there's surveys in literary criticism, right? So once again, there's this idea and this this, this logic that African American thought is a secondary, really unnecessary thing. And quite frankly, I was even told at some points that African-American literature is vulgar that it, it has content in it that's not necessarily appropriate, right? And so I think that when you really think about um, how so many English, so much of English curriculum really privileges a European and a white American literary expression, um, it is only, it's only, I feel like, an, an inevitability that you find yourself in these kinds of cultural moments where so many people are illiterate to what race is and what racism is and how it is operating and moving in people's lives and in society. Cause you have yet to read anything about this. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there, there's is so much literature that talks about this. I mean, there's literature that talks specifically about police brutality um, from a poetic standpoint. If you look at the work of, Where's my friend? Anna Devere Smith, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992. I had to look at my library real quick. Um, if, you, if you think about the fact that there is literature that is dealing with um, passing, dealing with what does it even mean to be Black? What is the experience of being Black in America? You are now asking every Black person you know in 2020 to come and tell you their experience when there is an entire literary canon... That, that has been writing now wow. yes. for 200 years about what it means to be Black in America and what that lived experience is from poverty to police brutality. And so if people would... Uh, cease to kind of burden their individual friends um, with their kind of personal narratives and begin to actually step out of yourself and realize that there is an entire canon and entire anthologies of literature, both fiction and nonfiction, that actively explores these ideas, I think that we would not have the kind of racial illiteracy that we see right now. Wow! Wow! And
1: I hope to get—I'm going to get book recommendations for you at the end of this because that's what I love to supply my listeners with if they want to follow up on more information and they're like, "Where can I begin this kind of investigation?" It's so interesting because I, I went to a high school that was very diverse, and it was kind of in this place where it was just very, very culturally diverse. But our system of education was not. And, and I and I think about it, and I'm like, "Wow! I don't think I've ever really encountered." a black text when I was even in high school, even though that was the majority of my peer group, right? And so I'm wondering even now how much that even creates a sense of divestment from the educational experience if you are not seeing yourself in, in the literature that's being taught. What are your thoughts?
0: Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I'm, I have been studying or reading literature since I was in high school, right? I first came in contact, I love telling this story. I first came in contact with Pip from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations when I was in high school, okay? From high school to undergrad to master's to PhD in English literature, I have had the opportunity, I have read Great Expectations three times, I have had the opportunity to read him four. That's just what, that's just Pip, okay? So I've read Pip close to four times in my educational curriculum. I have read the autobiography of the ex-colored man twice. One of which was an assigned reading from, my, from a class I was in in my master's program. The other time was an independent study, right? So when you think about the amount of times that we um, assign Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, right? There are, there are these, these texts that we all know, texts that we have all read, regardless of whether or not you are an English major or not. And I think that what is so distressing is that if I come into an English class as a black or a brown student, And these are the kind of general education readings that I need to read for my critical uh, thinking, my writing, my reading comprehension skills. And the only books that I'm going to read are always going to be European or white American texts. I really don't want to engage in the kind of writing and intellectual labor that you're asking of me because I actually don't identify with Pip. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't identify with him as a character there's nothing in this... 500 page narrative that resonates with me that makes me laugh that I can think of and want to kind of critically write on and so it's like the moment that you then introduce a student of color I I, I think of the time when I was in high school when I got introduced to a Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry like a text that is based in the city of Chicago by a black female writer a super religious mother, right? And you've got this whole family kind of living together, trying to understand what does it mean to go after the American dream in the projects in Chicago. My family's from Chicago. I have a super religious mother, a family that is uh, very big on education, right? So then when you ask me, to do intellectual labor on things that I now am emotionally connected with, I am much more inclined to to glean and participate and and gain the skills that you want from me versus the kind of mental shut off that happens because I'm so sick of reading white authors and white characters that I just do not resonate and connect with. And I firmly believe that there are other students and other people groups, particularly those of us who might have had the privilege of having a Native American student in in our classrooms or a uh, Latino student in our classrooms or an Asian student in our classrooms or a Jewish student in our classrooms. When have we ever read a a book of fiction written by a Native American? when have you ever read a book of fiction written by a Jewish person, right? And so it's like, there are just so many ethnic groups that I think are erased out of what is the Literary Historical Humanities Academy. And there's this privileging of one narrative and one experience, and that one narrative, that one experience is universal. And I can, I should be able to connect with that experience to engage in my intellectual labor. When I just feel like the act of reading and the work of of, of critical um, literary critique actually requires that there be some kind of emotional connection, or the work becomes laborious. Right. Oh, you
1: you said it beautifully. You know, and I like I said, I think about my educational experience, the educational experience of my peers, and I wonder if this did not contribute to feeling like you're not an academic, right? Because you're not Mm -hmm. seeing yourself in in, in the uh, literature that's being written. And so you say, well, this must not be a space for me because I don't see my experience here. Yeah. What is the importance, you know, Maybe going back to some of your experience going into college and kind of leading up to you saying, I need to start this African-American minor study. You mentioned something like, um, you know, what is kind of some of the results or some of the fallout from not being exposed to literature from a different sociological standpoint?
0: Man, I know that I can say for myself, there was great frustration Uh, Because I think when I left high school um, and entered into the English program at Andrews, I was abundantly clear on what I wanted to specialize in. I did the emphasis in literature. The plan was to focus on African-American literature because Claudia wants to teach African-American studies, right? So even as a freshman, I came in with a very clear picture of what I wanted to do. And I think that the reality was that the department at that time did not have the infrastructure or the curriculum to support that venture. And so what I found myself in was a a seat of deep frustration in that every single class, I'm reading everything, but what it is that I actually want to specialize in. So I can't even get um, an introduction into the into this work that I'm going to subsequently try to apply to get into a graduate school for. Um, and so that really led me into the space of actively creating independent studies for myself. Um, because I'm looking at graduate schools and it's like Claudia, you have to have nine to thirteen credits of African American studies to get into any of these programs. Where am I gonna find nine to thirteen credits of <laughs> African American studies coursework at Andrews already within the bulletin? And I think that that I think that while it was frustrating, I think it was also empowering. Because it also said to me, well, Claudia, you actually might not be the only person attending this school wanting to engage in this kind of academic work reading these kinds of materials. I don't know how many individuals uh, in the seminary have complained to me about the amount of theology they read that is not written by a black theologian. How many history majors complained about the the amount of of historical narrative and and historical criticism um, that does not document the black experience in America or was not written by a black person in America. So there was this gap in curriculum in several departments, it wasn't even just mine. And so I think that that was very empowering for me to say, well, you know what, if there is a problem, I'm not going to complain about it and leave, I'm going to be the solution. Um, how do I fix, um, the fact that we all want to be reading, um, texts written by individuals that look like us and believe in the things that we believe in. Um, and that's really what led me to go to my chair, Dr. Doug Jones, and really, uh, kind of express to him my desire to create this kind of mandatory, um, GE course in African-American literature. Um, and, you know, I was blessed, you know, my chair was, um, very uh, welcoming of the idea. And, you know, he was so supportive of me from day one um, in my direction and, and what I wanted to do and and things of this nature. So, you know, Dr. Jones really um, even took me a step further. I will never forget in his office when he looked at me and, and was just like, uh, Claudia, I think you're lowballing, you know, I'm sure that's not the word he used, but um where he really just felt like Claudia, I feel like this is a a a low goal. You can um, aim for something much higher. And when he um, purported or or, or or offered to me the the option of really organizing a minor together, the moment he said it, I was like, Dougie J, I've never called him that to his face. <laughs> Dougie J, that's good. Um, and and that really, I think it's so critical that even when when Black students are in academic spaces that lack curriculum and lack culture that lift them up, it is so critical that they have white faculty members and white professors that give them the creative space, but then also the support and the backing for them to follow their academic dreams and goals all the way through. And that is who Dr. Jones was for me. Wow.
1: And give us a little taste and and maybe we can get a little bit more into like what what all is required if somebody wanted to start a minor studies, but like, give us a little taste. What is some literature that you've come in contact with that you felt like this needs to be a part of our curriculum, or this is really telling a story that we need to hear? I mean, what are some prominent books that come to your mind or or things that you've encountered
0: that's really emotionally impacted you? Man, that's such a difficult question. Somebody asked me that this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that for me, If, if, if you want a really good introduction to black literature, um, I think um, I would probably have you read The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, um, and then I would have you read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. So let's, I'm going like, to try to cover all the periods, give you two of each, right? <laughs> so, 19th century Frederick and Harriet. Okay. <laughs> 20th century is going to be much more complicated. Um, 20th century, I definitely think you've got to read The Autobiography of the Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson. You've got to read um, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. You've got to read um, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Moses, Man in the Mountains, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, You've got to read The Poetry of County Cullen Uh, Claude McKay, um, Langston Hughes. Um, You've got to read the novels, all 11, uh, by Toni Morrison. Um, You've got to read um, the writings of James Baldwin, particularly The Fire Next Time. Uh, Once you get into the 70s and the 80s, you really need to read Intisake Shange's For Color Girls. Um, and then if we come into, well, I have to throw in Amiri Baraka, his poetry, um, The Colored Museum, um, is a phenomenal play, um, that's not by Amiri Baraka, I just can't remember his name, Is George something, The Colored Museum, and then, um, as you come into the 21st century, one of my absolute favorite contemporary works of literature is the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead? Hmm. Um, he did this masterful retelling of the Underground Railroad, and it's basically kind of like a, a sci-fi Afrofuturist um, approach to the slave narrative, where the Underground Railroad takes on this this turn of actually being a railway a railway car. Hmm um, and it mixes several, um, time periods together. Um, and so, you know, there's this female protagonist is kind of on this railway car going to different locations in the South on her way, you know, up North to freedom. And, you know, there's, Moments that are so reminiscent of the Re- the Reconstruction period or the 1950s, uh, many things that are not necessarily historically accurate to the moment of slavery, but really makes you feel like this whole experience really is one. It started and it hasn't really stopped. And he forces you to kind of answer this question of, have we ever become really free? Are we really free, hmm. um, even though we have kind of received this emancipation proclamation? Um, and so I think that, just fiction-wise, those are those are phenomenal. Um, and I guess I did name a couple nonfiction books in there, but I think those are those are phenomenal places to start. Um, and I think that if you want to get more specific into things on race and racism and Other more theoretical ideas and notions. um, There are phenomenal Black thinkers um, that I could name off for that as well. Wow,
1: that's fantastic. I'm going to list these in our description at the end so that people can just click and go to Amazon and and buy them. uh, Absolutely. Build up their repertoire. Because I think what you're talking about is so important. You know, like, how do we really become familiar with? the experiences of those around us and that we can begin to engage in a more mindful way with our peers. Like, how do you feel that, uh, you know, someone who might not ever have been exposed to African American education, like, what do you think that they can gain so that they can move forward in their relationships in, you know, in a little more educated way? And is this kind of a road towards fixing the problems of racism
0: in that sense? (sighs) You know, I think that that's a very complex question just because I think, you know, as James Baldwin has written, and this is a paraphrase, you know, Black people um, have always had to know about white people, about white people, about how they function, move, think, operate, philosophize, um, all of these things. uh, White people have never been in a position where they have to know about the other. It is a privilege that you do not have to know why I think the way that I think. I actively have to know how white people think as a means of survival. And so I think that that's kind of the situation that we're in, is that you have an entire way of being um, that has now been chronicled and has become a field of study, um, which is so important because the fact of the matter is whiteness is, is, is so privileged that it is normalized, that this is this is how humanity is and should function and operate. Anything outside of that is just interesting. Um, and I think that that inherently perpetuates um, the systemic racism that we see because you've literally built an entire educational system around the notion that Euro-white American expressions, thought processes, philosophies, are the standard. And when you get into reading Native American works, and when you get into reading Black American works, and when you get into reading Asian American and Latino American works, you see that there are other modes of operation. There are other ways of thinking, there are other ways of approaching and doing things. And oftentimes, you know, it's like I used to always hear from married people. They would always say, you know, you, you don't know how difficult marriage is until you get married because you always have your way of doing things, right? I have my way of cleaning my house. I have my way of doing the dishes. I have my way of setting the table. And then somebody comes into your space and they start doing something different and it upsets you because in your mind, they're doing it wrong. And that's really what culture is. Whiteness has been set up as the standard of culture. And whenever blackness comes in and says, no, let's do it this way. Whenever Latino culture comes in and says, no, let's do it this way. And Native American culture comes in and says, let's do it this way. And Asian American culture comes in and says, let's do it this way. Whiteness is troubled. Whiteness is frustrated. Like, no, I've been doing it this way for 500 years. I don't want to do it a different way. And so then it's like, well, what if your way is actually traumatizing? What if your way is violent? What if your way is not actually profitable or encouraging or edifying for me? It's only beneficial to you. Then your way needs to be problematized. Your way needs to be critiqued. Your way needs to be altered. And I think that when we open up our educational curriculum and we let everybody in and we begin to kind of diversify not only our spaces, But what we are learning, it is then that you actually create a space where we can actually cohabitate. We can actually coexist. We actually can now tolerate um, and allow differing thoughts to come in simultaneously, right? Because we like to say that we are a diverse institution or a diverse entity. But are you really diverse if you cannot handle diversity of thought? Yeah right that and, and that's not just r- racial diversity of thought can you handle religious diversity of thought right can you handle um like intellectual diversity of thought right like there's 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 so many levels um to curriculum that i think we have shut off because we are not and and i won't even just say it's just adventist education i've noticed this in general that schools have the tendency to not promote education, but promote indoctrination.
1: Hmm, Okay, I,
0: I want you to think a certain way. I want you to leave here with a certain set of values, principles, and goals. I want you to operate in a certain way. So I am going to create an educational curriculum and an educational system that promotes that end. That is indoctrination. That is not teaching you how to think. That is teaching you what to think. And that is... When you are unwilling to let in any mode of thinking that disagrees with you and you cannot permit diversity of thought, you in essence are encouraging an educational space that says, I am more interested in telling you what to think instead of teaching you how to think.
1: This conversation was just so good that I had to break it up into two parts. So stay tuned for part two of this episode as we continue to discuss the importance of African-American studies and the fight against racism. We have a long list of recommended readings for this week, which include The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, Moses, Man of the Mountain by Zora Neale Hurston, and a long list of poetry by County Cullen, Claude McKay, and Langston Hughes. Also including novels by Toni Morrison, uh, or the book The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, For Colored Girls by Intezake Shange, and Works by Amiri Baraka. And the last two include The Colored Museum by George C. Wolfe, and the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. All of this will be listed in the description of the YouTube video containing this talk. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Claudia M. Allen. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle, at AdventNext. If you want to follow our guest today, you can find her at the handle, kamal 365 That's C-A-M-A-A-L 365. Thanks so much for joining us and see you next week.